Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, first fortnight, Ireland's Mental Health Festival is in full swing. I'll be meeting CEO Maria Fleming to hear about the research behind the stunning events. I'll be getting a neuroscientist's view on New Year's resolutions and talking to Kira Kelly about 100 days of walking following two hip replacements. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I've had a good week. I'm still adopting an air of easing myself into the new year. No rushing anywhere. I took down the Christmas decorations with gusto last week. I felt so ready for the clean slate feeling. I felt that first week back, it still felt a bit wrong to be going to work. And I think that's down to... Santa's blinking at me and all the twinkly lights. So they are gone, as in the is the Bailey's coffee first thing in the morning. Um, my daughter was off sick this week, I'd have to confess. So that slowed me down even more. I didn't have to corral her out the door and through homework. And she wasn't really sick. She was just under the weather. So I'm allowed to feel grateful for that in a way. And I was back in the Spectrum Life studio for the first time of 2024. I hosted two seminars with financial expert Owen McGee and we were looking at managing money. Recent research from Leia Healthcare showed that the top two health and well-being at work trends are that acute anxiety is intensifying and that the cost of living remains the top stressor. The always anxious cohort has written, risen from 6% in 2020 to 15% now and the rise of the cost of living, money worries and uncertainty about the future were the top cited causes. So to give you some good news, Owen's advice when it came to managing our finances and so too our stress around it came down to the simple act of a pen and paper, looking at what's coming in and what is going out, becoming conscious of spending and saving and ultimately taking control of your money issues rather than allowing them to control you. Now, of course, this will be different for everyone and there are people experiencing homelessness and extreme poverty. Families and children are at the highest level of homelessness that the country has seen. So I don't mean to be glib about it, but often at the start of the year, if we are somebody who is working and are earning a decent amount of money, we swear we'll be better with money. Um, and often the year just comes and goes. It's definitely on my list for 2024. And it starts with that conscious awareness over head in the sand mentality. I'd love to hear your thoughts on money in the new year. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, first fortnight, the Mental Health, Art and Culture Festival is an inclusive, informative and immersive cultural kickstart to the new year. It takes place in the first two weeks of January every year with the support of a wide reaching collection of creative works and events. And it aims to tackle the stigma attached to mental ill health. I'm joined in studio by CEO of the festival, Maria Fleming. Maria, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Is it too late to say Happy New Year? No, I think we're all still saying <laughs> it. But I, I, I can't wait till I stop saying it. It's taking a lot of time in emails. In emails, yeah, it takes up a line. <laughs> we're losing years of our lives if we add it all together. But Happy New Year indeed Thank to you. you. And it's always a busy start to the new year 
for you. And the festival's wrapping up this weekend. So talk to us about some of the highlights. That's right. So there will be some events uh, continuing on, which I think we're going to discuss as well. Some in Kildare and uh, Limerick. And we've spread out a bit this year. But the festival started on the 5th of January. So we were back to work very quickly after Christmas uh, and delighted to be so to get the festival up and running. And one of the highlights for me was we had a full day of events around Nullagnum on, which is something that would be very close to my heart anyway. And we started the day with the chat with some of our partners in Mental Health Reform, Mental Health Ireland and the National Women's Council, who had all in recent years done research around um mental health and women in Ireland in particular, what services are available, what gaps there are and it'll be no surprise to anybody that they did find quite a a lot of gaps but there was a lot of positives in, you know, what we could do going forward to support women and mental health and then later in the afternoon we had a gorgeous event where I got to speak to Claire Walsh and Ruth Fitzmaurice who are two women who both took to the sea for their mental health and people may be familiar with their books, um, Ruth Fitzmaurice wrote a book called I Found My Tribe, uh, which I think um, she's been on the radio here talking about as well. Um, And uh, Claire Walsh started free diving for her mental health. She suffered from depression when she was younger and started free diving and can now reach 60 metres on one breath below water. And she found that controlling her breath and the discipline of free diving and the experience of being out in the water helped her with her mental health. So we had over 100 women uh, attending the the talk, most of whom are sea swimmers and who do use the sea for their own mental health at that at that talk on the 6th um, and we ended up the evening with uh, Irish Women in Harmony just an incredibly talented group of women annoyingly talented I would say <laughs> and uh, they were giving the first outing of their single which is being released this weekend uh, of Nothing Compares to You they're doing a cover of the Sinead O'Connor uh, single with the blessing of Sinead's family and all proceeds from that single are going to the Ashling project. But of course, that was a perfect match for First Fortnight because Sinead O'Connor was an incredible artist who really um, spoke out and spoke for people with mental health. And that's what First Fortnight is all about. We're working a lot of the time with artists who have their own lived experience of mental ill health and it's using their own experience through their art form They explore the topic and allow others to see themselves represented, whether it's on stage, screen, on the page, through music. And we hope that having conversations as a result of the art that people experience through our festival, that we start to break down the stigma. And the reason we need to do that is research has shown that the stigma will stop people from seeking help. People will try and disguise or hide what's going on rather than talk talking to people and seeking out the support and help that they need. And mental ill health is the same as any illness. The sooner you look for help, the more positive the outcome will be. So that was one 
great big day uh, on uh, as part of the festival, but there's lots still going on, um, uh, finishing up today and then lots going on around the country. And we're so appreciative for all the people who have come out and supported us. Uh, over 60% of our events are free of charge or pay what you can. But we've had lots of really lovely, generous donations from the audience as well. And I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone who donated. Uh, you will really help our work in the festival and also year round where we run creative art therapy services for children, adolescents and adults who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. I'm jealous of your Nolignaman for a start. What a day. That gave me chills. What an incredible day. I loved both of those books, um, Claire Walsh and, and Ruth Fitzmaurice. Um, and to end off with that group of annoyingly talented women, as you said, <laughs> was incredible. And you mentioned the research around stigma and the importance of that in this festival and, and getting rid of the stigma around mental ill health. Um, but there's also a lot of research around the role of arts and culture in mental health. Yes. And uh, so that's the reason why we are where we are. Now, for uh, for a lot of us, for people working and, um, you know, ingrained in the arts, I suppose we we know it, we experience, we know the, the power and the healing power of the arts and how positive it can be. But it's no harm to have a bit of science behind it as well to win other people over. And there's a couple of um, uh, pieces of research that really uh, speak to me. And one of them, um, and I think we might have spoken about this last year, one of them is that the University of London have done some research that shows that an audience watching theatre, their heartbeats synchronise. Um, and while you're sitting in the theatre and as, you know, the action builds up, if your heart is racing, the, the, the heartbeats around you increase as well. And then when people break off at the interval and go off and do their thing, the heartbeats go back to individual um, rates. And when you sit back down for the second half of the show, the heartbeats once again synchronise, which shows to us who work in the arts something we already know, the connection that people feel when they attend live events, which is very different uh, to anything else, to experience something sitting at home on your couch, which we all know from the time we've experienced the last few years, that sitting together in an audience, experiencing something live at the same time is really important. Uh, There's another piece of research, a longitudinal study in New York, where they're working with children in disadvantaged areas of New York. And they studied over a five or six year period, children who were given access to the arts and children who had limited or no access to the arts. And one of the most astounding things, there were lots of findings from it, but one of the things that they found that children who had access to the arts had hope. And like that just gives me chills every time I experience that. And how they discovered that they they, um, you know, did surveys with the children across the duration of the um, the project and the research. And at one point, you know, the children who had had access to the art, when they measured them, they were more likely to think they were going to go to college, more likely to think they were going to own their own home, more likely to think they would have families when they grew up, as opposed to the children who did not have access to the arts. So there's power for you. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the power of storytelling. I know we're big storytellers here in Ireland, but 
we're living in the age of information. We're getting swamped with a lot of information, which is really good for building awareness and informing ourselves. But I think sometimes the arts and culture can tell a story, can teach us in a more relaxed form. You can walk away deeply moved by something and enlightened buy something because of the way you've seen it performed or presented. Yes, and we we had a brilliant example of that in the festival. There's a show called Dopamine Girl, uh, which is by Louisa Niedon. And uh, she was um, somebody who had a late diagnosis of ADHD. uh, And she explores the experience of for her having that late diagnosis and, you know, re-understanding things that happened to her as a child or a teen now that she had a neurodiverse diagnosis and there's a hilarious song that she sings in the middle where she gives loads of statistics but it's all done through a musical number while she's wearing a sparkly dress and you just take in the information <laughs> so like if if I did a PowerPoint presentation for you here now with the same stats they wouldn't stick you know but like this you know fabulous artist standing in front of you in a sparkly dress on a keyboard singing to you about the statistics around ADHD and women is spectacular. Our sequence can, you know... Always a winner. Yeah, always (laughs) drive something home that little bit better. Tell us a bit about Notifications Off. It's a tapestry by Electronic Sheep. People can still catch it today at the Hunt Museum in Limerick, but then it's going on. It's quite a special piece. This is very close to my heart. So this came about as a conversation that I had with the two artists, Brenda Hearn and Helen Delaney, who make up Electronic Sheep. And they have a very successful uh, um, commercial business where they make really beautiful scarves and cardigans but they also have a fabulous artistic practice where they do collaborations and now have created two beautiful tapestries one of which notifications off we commissioned and really how this came about was because I was a big fan and I was fangirling them at their exhibition I love my scarf yeah they are fabulous their scarves I have three of them now but I I was chatting to Brenda and Helen about the collaborations that they had done in the past and I asked would you be interested in collaborating with First Fortnight and as with most people both of them had experience through family members or friends of people who had struggled with their mental health and they really wanted to be part of this project and they've been such fantastic partners so um, we got commissioning funding from the Arts Council to commission them they went away and really quickly worked up an idea and then spent a full year contacting lots of individuals, um, some celebrities, some friends of theirs, some artists, um, some non-famous people like myself, whose stories they gathered and um, incorporated through objects into the tapestry. So there's this beautiful story told on the tapestry of different ways that people find to cope with um, struggling with their mental health. And it could be depictions of pets, of music, somebody dancing, somebody writing a song. And that's all depicted on the tapestry. And the tapestry was commissioned originally for last year, um, but has been so successful that that since then it's toured to the um, University in Middlesex in London. It's been at the Centre Cultural Irlandais in Paris, and it's now in Limerick in the Hunt Museum and we're delighted to partner with the Hunt Museum because Limerick is one of the areas that we're strategically partnered with 
uh, through first fortnight this year. And then the tapestry is going on back to London to the Kiln Theatre in Kilburn in March um, as part of an exhibition of the Irish in London. And it will be partnered there with its sister tapestry, the Kilburn Tapestry, also by Electronic Sheep. So it's it's a wonderful partnership. We're hoping that it will continue on and we'll be working with Electronic Sheep for years to come. And we're looking for now world domination through tapestry. I love it. You're just looking for another scarf, I'd I, say. I think I am also <laughs> just looking for another scarf. No, I can tell. It's incredible work that you do with the festival. I know it's you and, a, and an incredible team That's and right. collaborators. Um, and people can find out more at firstfortnight.ie. CEO Maria Fleming, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, regular listeners to the show will know that I don't really go in for New Year's resolutions. I do think there's a new energy to be harnessed with the start of a new year, but people beating themselves with a stick over what they did wrong in inverted commas, of course, last year and putting pressure on themselves to do it better this year. Well, look, it's just not health and well-being to me. However, making small and incremental changes for your good, I'm up for that. So how best can we achieve that? Well, I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Henry Monka, neuroscientist and CEO of Brain HQ. Henry, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to chat with you here, Claire. Claire, and I couldn't agree more fully with you and how you described your viewpoint about New Year's resolutions. Oh, good stuff. Well, what does the research tell us? Well, you know, I'm, as you said, a neuroscientist, so I tend to look at New Year's resolutions through the lens of a, of a brain scientist. And uh, I think one of the things that we, we really get wrong about New Year's resolutions, exactly like you said, is, you know, we treat them like a big monumental decision that everything has to suddenly be gotten right and gotten perfect all at once. And we then think about it like something we can simply make a decision about, right? I simply am going to decide to not have dessert anymore. I'm simply going to decide that I'm going to go to the gym every day, seven days a week, and, and, and then everything's going to be great. But that's not really how our brains work, right? And when we think about changing our behavior and building new habits, we have to think about this as brain scientists, as people who think about learning and brain change. And if we think about it that way, I think we can actually get to a much better answer about how to build the new habits we want. So what level of understanding of how the brain works do we need to have in order to make this work? Well, almost none, because really the main lens that I think we need to bring to it is we need to think about a New Year's resolution as more like learning to do something new as opposed to making a single monumental decision. So, so what do I mean by that? Um, well, most of us learn know a lot about how to learn something, right? You know, maybe you learned French when you were in school. Maybe you've learned to play a musical instrument. Maybe you've learned to play a sport like football or soccer. And we all know that the way learning works is it proceeds in, well, small incremental steps. And hey, if you get a few steps wrong at some point, well, no problem. You just go back and get back on and, and keep trying. And that over time, those small incremental steps will lead to an enormous change, right? You might be able to speak some French or play some football or any one of a number of things. And that's, in my view, as a neuroscientist, exactly how we should be thinking about New Year's resolutions as well. We should be thinking about the goals we want to change in our behavior, whether it's eating differently or exercising more. Well, maybe your New Year's resolution is to learn French, I suppose. And we, if we think about that as a learning goal and we break it down into small steps, 
We don't berate ourselves. If we miss one step, we just go back one step and get back on and keep going. We'll be able to drive those behavior changes. And why does that happen in the brain? Well, that's because that's how the brain learns, right? You don't go from knowing no French to all of French in a day. And you don't go from always skipping, never skipping dessert to always skipping dessert in a day. The way the brain learns is it makes an incremental step. It gets some positive feedback from making that step. And that actually pumps some dopamine in the brain. And dopamine is a chemical that helps brain change, helps brains rewiring and helps learn. By making that successful small step and getting that little hit of dopamine, it helps rewire your brain to do the thing you're trying to learn how to do, in this case, to change a habit. And then you can take the next step in a little bit bigger way. Something I loved reading your research was the line where you said, the brain prefers the carrot to the stick. And it's really important that we reward ourselves. And I think people need to hear that in January. I couldn't agree more strongly that, you know, we know from brain science that the way the brain learns is through positive reinforcement. You learn by trying something that you're not quite maybe fully capable of, getting a lot of it right and getting some positive reinforcement about that. That actually literally changes the way neurons in the brain are connected to each other so that you're more likely to do what you were trying to do and succeed at it the next time. You know, the main thing I think that negative reinforcement does, and we know this both from psychology, but I think from brain science as well, is it just makes you want to avoid the entire topic, right? So if you get, uh, you know, let's say you're trying to learn something new, you're trying to learn the piano, right? You get negative reinforcement about playing some wrong notes. Most people's effect on that on their brain and their psychology, it isn't, well, I guess I need to practice and try harder. It's playing the piano isn't very much fun. I think I'd rather do something else, right? And so in that sense, that negative reinforcement just makes us avoid an entire topic. Whereas positive reinforcement, you know, builds a habit, builds a pleasure cycle around a certain activity. And in fact, then again, helps our brain rewire itself to do more of that activity. Quite often, we start from a negative, though, don't we? We want to do things differently. We're fed up feeling the way we feel. Or if we look at money, for example, people say, you know, I haven't saved anything in 2023. This is the year I'm going to take control of my money. That's quite a big, lofty plan. There isn't anything really tangible there. Is that part of the mistake that we almost dream too big? I think that's exactly right. And I think that um, we need to take those big dreams and then we need to be thoughtful and systematic about laying out a set of very small incremental steps towards that. You know, we're not going to wake up on January 2nd uh, and have taken control of our financial life. And if we feel like that was our goal, when we fail, like we were just talking about a moment ago, we're going to find the whole topic of finances kind of negative and aversive because we associate it with failure. We're not going to want to think about it for the rest of the year, which is perhaps even worse. I think it's important to have those big goals like, OK, I, I do want to have better control over my finances. But again, if we think about how can we teach the brain, how can we help the brain learn to have better control of our finances? We're going to need to break that down into many, many, many small steps. 
But the good news about that is those small steps are more achievable. And each time we succeed at a small step, we're going to feel good about our money situation rather than feeling bad as a failure. And feeling good about our money situation is going to send those positive, rewarding dopamine signals to our brain and, and rewire our brain even more to be taking those small steps that we want. So, for example, money is a great example, right? And everyone's finance situation is different. I'm you know, obviously not going to give anyone specific financial advice right here on the show. But, you know, if you sort of think, well, instead of my goal being in a single step to be in control of my finances, maybe my first goal is, hey, each week I'm just going to look at my checkbook and I'm going to figure out what money I spent, Right. I'm not even really trying to change how I'm spending money first, but I'm just trying to take a first step of just knowing a bit more about it. Well, that might be a goal that a lot of people can achieve, right? I'm just going to look at my checkbook and look at the numbers once a week. And hey, once I've done that for a week or two, that actually felt positive, right? I set that smaller goal, I achieved it, and now I'm ready for another step towards my journey towards, towards financial control. And so in that sense, teaching your brain that this is something I can succeed at, teaching your brain that I can get better at it step by step. That is what is the key to like laying down those new neural pathways in the brain that in the end give us what we want, which is that changed behavior we're trying to get towards. I like the reward part of it as well, that every step along the way we have to keep congratulating ourselves because I think often that can be missing with a resolution. And maybe that's why more than 80% of people have given up by Valentine's Day. They just throw their hat at it because it feels too hard. We need to be kinder to ourselves. Yeah, we need to be kinder to ourselves. We need to celebrate those small wins. You know, sometimes people talk about heading towards one of those big lofty goals, right? And, uh, you know, I've heard people use the phrase to me, you need to look forward so you see where you're trying to get to. But you also need to look behind and see that, hey, I've made some progress towards that. So even if that lofty goal is still a ways ahead of me, take a look back and see, well, hey, I have taken some of those first few steps. I was successful. I'm starting to rewire my brain. I'm starting to build those new habits. And that gives me the momentum at a psychological level and frankly gives me the brain wiring at a brain level that makes the next few steps of that uh, continue to be, you know, not overwhelmingly difficult. How long does it take to make a habit part of who you are from a rewiring your brain side of things? You know, if we look at just the brain science of rewiring for simple tasks, right, you can you can start to build associations and brain change, you know, frankly, with, you know, 10 hours of, of, of training, you know, over a couple of weeks. Um, and to some extent, of course, it starts even sooner than that. And that's for, you know, maybe some of the simpler things that we might want to rewire our brain to do. Obviously, you're not going to learn French in a week and you're not going to gain, uh, you're not going to learn French in 10 hours and you're not going to gain control of your finances in 10 hours. But, you know, if you're doing something, you know, let's go back to that example of finances, right? And let's say you've set up your small goal is, hey, each week I'm going to spend half an hour and I'm going to review my checkbook and just look at the money that I've spent. I'm not even trying to change my spending, right? I'm just going to look at the money I've spent and look at the money I've earned and just make sure that I've seen those numbers. 
you know, a couple hours of that over a few weeks, that's going to start to be something that gets kind of baked into the rhythm of your life. Your brain is going to be rewired a little bit. So it's going to say, oh, it's uh, after breakfast on Saturday. And I guess that's what I'm in the habit of doing after breakfast on Saturday is looking at my checkbook in this way. But that tells us how important it is to think about it not as a moral decision. I'm going to get control of my finance life or I'm going to skip dessert, but as a habit, as a learning decision, you know, building some rhythms into your life so that your brain and your mind are cued. Hey, this is actually the time that I'm doing that new thing, right? I'm doing it after I have breakfast on Saturday. Or in the case of, let's say you're trying to skip dessert. Hey, I'm building a new habit instead of after dinner immediately opening up the ice cream from the freezer, I'm going to open up a book instead and try and replace it in that way. But again, thinking about it as a, a learning habit that we're building rather than a moral decision, that's going to help that step-by-step -step piece happen. And then, you know, four or five hours after a few weeks, your brain's going to be a bit rewired and you're ready to maybe take that next step towards your, towards your big mountaintop of a journey. Do you set New Year's resolutions, Henry? You know, uh, not, my wife and I are not big New Year's people, but I do think that there is a lot to be said, as you said, for the energy of it. Um, you know, that feeling that it's a new year and rather than picking, you know, July 19th as the date that I'm going to try and start to change something, let's use a little bit of that energy that we have. So in, in my case, I've actually been working on learning, uh, learning a musical instrument. And uh, I've started to take lessons over the past year, which has been great. But, you know, as the new year started, I realized that one of the things I wanted to do was to, was to practice more because I'm really enjoying it. And so, you know, in that sense, my new year's resolution was, hey, I want to at least I, I at least want to lay my hands on my instrument five times a week. But here are a few things that I think were, are helpful to me as I've gotten going. I didn't say I was going to practice every day, right? I gave myself those two days a week where I'm like, hey, if I don't touch it that time, that's okay. And that's important because we're always going to have a setback now and then. And we don't want that setback to mean it's the end of our goal entirely. And then the other piece of it is for me, I said, well, look, it's going to count as practice as long as I pick it up and I play for just a minute or two. And if that's all I do, I want to feel good that, hey, I made that time to at least touch the instrument and start to work on it. I didn't say I need to practice an hour a day or <clears throat> I need to learn a Bach piece by the end of the week. But my hope is that by setting that goal and achieving it most of the time, I'll start to build it more over the course of the year and I'll find myself practicing even more and more as my brain rewires itself to build that habit. Oh, well, after dinner, I go downstairs and I pick it up and I play for just a few minutes, right? Well, while something else is going on. So I'm hopeful that by setting those small goals, making it okay to feel a little bit, that I'm going to be able to build that habit and practice more over the course of the year. How's it going so far as we speak on well, what, the 14th well, two, is it today? Uh, you're exactly right. We're, we're about two weeks into it right now. And so far, so good. Some of those practice sessions have been just going down and playing a scale once and then going back upstairs to wash the dishes. But others of them, you know, I found, oh my gosh, the time has passed. I've been practicing for half an hour now. So, so far, so good. I'm happy with it. Well, good for you. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Dr. Henry Monka, neuroscientist and CEO at Brain. HQ. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, 100 Days of Walking, the brainchild of News Talk Breakfast's Kira Kelly, and it has to be said, the OG of Alive and Kicking. In its seventh year, it encourages people to prioritise themselves, get out for a walk for 100 consecutive days, and even in recovery after her second hip replacement, Kira will be taking part herself. And she joins me on the line now. Kira, how are you? Good morning, Claire. How are you? 
I'm very good. Thank you very much. You've just finished up some physio, I believe. Will there be pain involved in that? Will you be a bit sore for a while? You know, there has been a, a bit of pain uh, on this journey. I, I won't deny it. Um, I, I don't think you can make an omelette without cracking a few eggs. Um, but having said that, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I, I'll be, I'm a little bit stiff. I'm a little bit sore. But to be honest, it's all good. It's all good. It's all... I. I haven't quite turned a corner. I wish I had. I haven't quite turned a corner, but I can see the corner now, I think. I think the corner is within sight. So where are you at now? How long since your second operation? Four weeks since my second hip operation. And uh, that would add 12 onto that. I guess 16 weeks since my first one. Um, So yeah, I, I, I... potentially bit off a bit more than I could chew. I w- it was me more than 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 the surgeons who, who was pushing to get them done back to back. Um, I just wanted to get back uh, active and um, I was very frustrated w- w- with being unable to be active in the way I wanted to be. So I was like, how, how quick can we do them? <laughs> Bang them out. And uh, I did find the second one a little bit um, harder because I think uh, potentially I had pr- potentially bitten off more than I could chew and uh, it, it it was a lot of I was barely off crutches and I was back on crutches kind of thing and, and it took a bit more out of me than I expected but nonetheless as I say I do think I can see the corner if I have not yet turned it. Yeah and I kind of get where you were coming from with it. Were you thinking what's the point in getting you know back with one hip and then having to go through the whole thing again may as well get it all done and as foul a swoop as you can. It, it, pretty much that. But also, do you know what? I really wanted to to box it all off in 2023, which is purely a sort of a psychological thing. I just went, I want to draw um, kind of a, a, a line under that year. I want to draw a line under all of that. And and I could have taken more time. I could have done it uh, second hip in, in, in sometime in 2024. I would have had an easier Christmas, all that kind of stuff. But I just wanted to put it behind me. And I, and I, so I, I, <laughs> if you knew me well, you would know this would be very me. I just wanted to get it done. I wanted to get it sorted and I wanted to move on. And I am, I am attempting that now. Well, I've been reading about it in your Life magazine column with interest. You've been sort of documenting your experience here and there from the first operation where you said you learned quite a lot about the art of slowing down. Yeah, well, I didn't really have very much choice. Um, I wouldn't be a, a slow person by nature. I'm, I'm, I, I kind of have a fast brain. I, I, I squash a lot into my my life and my day, and I live like that in a way that wouldn't suit everybody, but it does sort of suit me. And then, little by little, over time, I found I couldn't really do it, and and that was. That was a bit of a land because I, I I didn't sort of see that coming and uh, there was nothing I could... I was in denial about it, I'd say, for a long time, to be honest, that I was like, I kept thinking, when am, when am I going to get over these hip things? And of course, <laughs> they only moved in one direction, which is all downhill. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that that I, I was forced to slow down. I was forced to um, do less and to therefore prioritise what I did and all those types of things things and, and, you know, become at least temporarily, perhaps, reflective. Now, you don't strike me as someone who would fear ageing necessarily or see it as something, a time to wind down. I'm always rather inspired by your later in life career pivot, for example. But was there any part of you that didn't like the sound of needing a hip replacement or two? Do you know, I weirdly, I never really associate. <laughs> 
shit with aging. Um, I was unlucky. I I, I uh, developed a condition called psoriatic arthritis. So I developed it within about six months a really aggressive form of arthritis and went from being somebody who walked for about two hours a day to getting this autoimmune condition that meant I would have struggled very badly. I mean, very badly to walk 100 yards. So I... Uh, it wasn't just, oh, look at me. You know, it normally happens when you're 80 or you're 70, but it happened to, it was, like, I, I was unlucky. I, I got hit with something that it sort of attacked my joints. Um, and um, I, in, see, in my head, Claire, and I'm not even joking, I'm about 35. I don't, I, I don't really think that way. Um, and, and I don't think about ageing and I don't worry about ageing because I, I don't really feel, even despite the hips and everything, mentally, I don't feel any different. I, I don't feel worn down or ground down by it or anything like that. Indeed, the minute I started, I was dealing with the hips for a good long while. And as I said, I was in a bit of a denial. And the minute it started to get in on top of me, I had maybe a week where I felt, Jesus, this this is a bit this is a bit shit. Now, has my life just gone pear-shaped over all this? The minute that kind of, that thought started to penetrate my brain, I... Um, picked up the phone to an orthopaedic surgeon and went, I think I need hip replacements. And I, I was seen relatively quickly and um, went on a waiting list uh, to get them done, which took a couple of months. I think it was about three months I had to wait to get them done, which is not bad. Um, but I think the minute it kind of started to get to me, I was like, OK, I have a problem. Now I need a solution. And on you went with it. Well, I'll see you with your 35 and raise you. I, I still think I'm at 24 and that's me pre-children so I don't know what that says for my poor kids but let's um, I, would, I wouldn't <laughs> knock that <laughs> Well it was definitely a very happy time in my life I've more responsibility now than my 24 year old self but essentially I'm the same Yeah I think I think we, we look at older people and we think oh look at them they're God knows, I don't know, different. It's like when we look at old photographs of the past, we think, oh, they, you know, they're in black and white. We think oh, they were a different, that was a different, that was a different people. But it's not, it's, it's like, it, 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 it was us living with, you know, less technology. Like people, people don't change. People's attitudes maybe and their social mores maybe come and go in terms of cycles or fashions. But what's inside people in terms of personality and hopes and dreams and wants and fears and all that stuff, that stays, that stays the same year in, year out. And that stays the same, I think, throughout your life to a large extent. That was, is very philosophical this morning. But I, I do think that. And so, um, yeah, I do feel the same. And I suspect I'll probably feel like this in several decades time as well. Well, the number might drop now. You've got your two new hips, but we shall see. And 100 days of walking this year <laughs> will be imperative to your recovery now. Yeah, I, 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 like what I can do is 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 limited. I'm still on two crutches, so it's just physically, practically impossible to walk as far on crutches as as you could without crutches. Um, and certainly the terrain and all that you would walk on, you have to you know stick to paths and stuff like that. You have to be a little bit careful. Um, so I am limited. I am slower. Um, so I don't. I'm I'm not I'm not uh, achieving what I would have in previous years and I'm not achieving what lots of other people who do 100 days of walking are achieving either but you know what I am doing I'm doing the maximum that I'm capable of doing and that was always what 100 days of walking was about I I always loved 100 days of walking for a few reasons first of all it was a very simple premise it was really really basic half an hour a day at a minimum at your own pace 
just get out and walk. And, and, and you're not buying anything. I'm not selling anything. It was just a very simple thing. But a couple of other things I, I really, really like about it is, is you're, you, you know, you're, it's not a race. You're, you're not, it's not competitive. People used to sometimes say to me when we, when we started it and I started, you know, doing it and getting people to do it. Um, why, don't, why don't you get people to train for something like a 5K or a marathon or a ha- blah, 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 triathlon? And I was thinking the people who want to train for those things can look after themselves. They're, they're already out there in their Lycra and what have you. I'm really interested in the people who don't have any kind of uh, healthy habit exercise wise or activity wise. And I'm really interested in bringing people at that level with me, people who maybe don't exercise and don't have that in their lives. They're, they're the people I was interested in talking to. And so 100 Days of Walking was always about doing what you could do on your own level. So it meant that it didn't matter how fit you were, it didn't matter how heavy you were, it didn't matter how old you were, you could do whatever you could do. And now I am in exactly that boat myself and uh, I'm glad of it because, you know, I need... The, the one thing I'd say to you about orthopaedic surgery is, is, first of all, fingers crossed, the surgery goes well. And in my case, luckily, touch wood, we, we think it has. Um but the, the second bit of it, which is just as important, is all the rehab that you do afterwards, the physio, the walking, all that stuff. You might as well forget it if you just go and have a successful surgery and then don't actually work on strengthening yourself back up afterwards because you will never be the same again. And I know if I don't do this, I will never be the same again. And I am absolutely um, determined to be the same again, if not better. I, what I keep saying to people when they ask me about it, I go, listen, Andy Murray has two uh, hip replacements. He still plays professional tennis. This is doable. You just have to keep your eye on the prize. Oh, there could be another career pivot on the way. Watch this space. It is a lovely positive start. I'm not saying, Claire. <laughs> I'm not saying, Claire, I could be or I will be a professional tennis player. I'm just saying, it's not an impossibility. That's all I'm, that's all I'm saying. I love you it. You heard it here first. That, that's an exclusive. I love it. I have a feeling determined is your middle name, to be honest, Kira. But I, I love 100 Days of Walking myself. It's a really positive start to the year. I love seeing people sharing pictures online. As you say, there's no pressure. People are just out and about. They're smiling. They're in nature. It shows how beautiful Ireland is on your own doorstep. And yeah, it's a, it's a really lovely thing to do. So look, we're sending all the love and strength your way, you and your crutches Thank over you. the 100 days where you start <laughs> and where you end, um, I hope will be stronger and better. And I've no doubt that that's where you are headed. Kira Kelly, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva-Scott, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.